is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, which we do every day on this show. Every kind of history segment, by the way, from the arts to the sports world to military history to business history, which is a very important part of our nation's development. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the beautiful things in life, all the things that matter in life, the arts, history, politics, the Constitution, Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare. It's all there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, a man launched a company that we all know and most of us use pretty regularly. And, well, it's just one of those American stories that's just worth telling. Let's take a listen. He created the world on time, a modern wonder where everything from the latest gadgets to the most critical documents, what you want and what you really need, can be delivered overnight. His team works this fast. Okay, you just travel plans. I need to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday. Got it? Got it. Got it. So you want to work here? What really makes you think you deserve a job here? Well, sir, I think on my feet I'm going to Peter's and have a sharp mind. Excellent. Can you start on Monday? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Without hesitation. Congratulations. Welcome aboard. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And in conclusion, Jim, Bill, Bob, call Fred, Low, Dork, Ava, Ted. Business is business. And as we all know, in order to get something done, you got to do something. In order to do something, we got to get to work. So let's get to work. Thank you for taking me. Pete, you did a bang up job. I'm putting you in charge of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. I know it's perfect, Peter. That's why I picked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's perfect. Peter, may I call you Pete? Call me Pete. Pete. Is Mr. Schnittler here to see you? Home to wait 15 seconds. Can you wait 15 seconds? I'll wait 15 seconds. Congratulations on your deal in Denver, Dave. I'm putting you down to deal with Dallas. Don, is it a deal? Do we have a deal? It's a deal. I got to go. I got a call coming in. Hi, Doc. Just tell with Don. In this fast moving, high pressure, get it done yesterday world, aren't you glad there's one company that can keep up with it all? Deal. Good. I'm putting you down to deal with Dick. Dick, what's the deal with the deal? Are we dealing? We're dealing. Dave, it's a deal with Don, Dork, Dick. Dork, it's a deal with Dave, Dick, and Dave. Don, it's a Dork with Dick, Dave, and Dick. Gotta go, Dave. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dick. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dad. Disconnecting. Federal Express. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. And all of this started with a college term paper. Its author was studying economics at Yale in 1965. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? Anyone? Anyone? Having a grand old time as a fraternity member. I don't think you can fully judge a fraternity without looking at the positive qualities of the people in it. Getting gentlemanly C's. But this paper, this one, stood out. In it, a young undergrad pondered what would have to change in society, in logistics, as our world became more and more automated more computerized. After all, computers break down, and always keeping a spare for every part would be impractical. So we needed a customized transportation system, one that could move valuable things cross-country, in the time it usually takes to move something cross-state. From that insight sprung one of the biggest companies in the world, today employing over 300,000 people. 
300,000. A team that powers businesses of all sizes and the occasional giant panda adventure. We uh, needed to find a partner that could uh, transport the, the giant pandas from China to Canada. We also needed a partner that could ship the bamboo, which would be coming from the Memphis region. There's not many partners out there that can do all of that. We're very pleased that FedEx uh, stepped up. FedEx did more than just step up. They emblazoned a giant panda onto an airplane and called it the Panda Express when something absolutely positively has to get there you call FedEx but this idea may never have gotten off the ground but for a family of entrepreneurs but for a little old war called Vietnam and but for a visionary young man Fred Smith Fred Smith was born in 1944 in Marks, Mississippi, a tiny town of about 2,000 people, due east of the mighty Mississippi River. Fred's grandfather, Captain James Buchanan Smith, was a master of steamboats along that river and the Ohio River, moving people and cargo up and downstream. Fred's father, James Frederick Smith, who also went by Fred, realized that the rivers of water connecting people then would soon give way to rivers of asphalt and concrete. And so he began selling trucks in nearby Memphis for the John T. Fisher Motor Company, one of the very first Chrysler franchises. In 1925, Fred's father took a truck that his boss had given him, replaced its cargo area with seating for 12, and began ferrying men and material around. What began as a one-man motor coach company turned into a 25-car company by the second year. And by the end of the third year, he had 60 coaches. Fred's father sold the company to Greyhound in 1931, more than a dozen years before Fred was born. But before young Fred could dream up ways to continue the family tradition of transportation, he had some other challenges. He had a rare childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip, which forced him to use crutches and watch sports from the sidelines in his early years. Fred outgrew the disease by the age of 10 and became an excellent football player. He even learned how to fly airplanes as a 15-year-old. Overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. And when we come back, more on the life of Fred Smith, the company he founded, FedEx. It's a classic American story. It's an American dream story, too, an American dreamer story for sure. On this day in history in 1971, Fred Smith founded and started FedEx. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History segment, and it's the story of the founding of FedEx, and that happened back in 1971 on This Day in History. We learned a little bit about Fred Smith's background, his dad, the Yale thesis, and now we're about to dig into the critical part of the development of this great company, and my goodness, when it first started, as you're about to hear Nobody, almost nobody, except maybe one person, thought this would be, would ever be, a great American company. Let's pick up where we last left off. Fred outgrew the childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip by the age of 10, overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. Having grown up without a father, my, my, my father passed away when I was four. So I was heavily influenced by my uncles and by my coaches. And uh, they were the, the influences uh, that, that really, I, I, can, I can hear their voices to this day, you know, talking to me. And, and I, I still hear my uncles, all of them World War II veterans and they're part of the greatest generation. And, uh, and my, my coaches there telling me, well, you know, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. Those same men inspired Fred to make a choice that would define his life and character. I was coming out of high school. There wasn't much question about the fact I was going to do my military service. It was just a matter of uh, which branch. And uh, uh, so uh, the Marine Corps appealed to me. The uniforms looked great. Fred left Memphis in 1962 for Yale. He would train with the Marines during the summer and go to class during the year. Life seemed to be going according to plan. It was during his junior year at Yale that Fred came up with the original idea for FedEx in that term paper. But before Fred could grow that into something that would change the world, events halfway around the world sent Fred to a very different sort of classroom. He soon left Yale, left with a degree and left with a commission as an officer in the United States Marine Corps, shipping out for the first of his two tours in Vietnam. I joined uh, my unit in Chulai. I became a platoon leader and uh, served in uh, India Company and uh, Lima Company. I was then given command of uh, K Company 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. This was a very different war than World War II or Korea with no clear battle lines. On a Monday morning in May 1968, Fred and his K Company engaged a much larger North Vietnamese battalion. Moving across fire-swept ground to reach higher elevation, Fred started calling down artillery and airstrikes to within 50 meters of where he himself stood. With fire support sowing confusion among the enemy, Fred and his Marines attacked and routed the much larger North Vietnamese force. What stands out most to Fred isn't the action, it's his fellow Marine. To this day, Fred beams with pride when he remembers the men he served with in K Company. Uh, there is nothing in my life that I'm more proud of than commanding K Company 3-5. They were the finest group of 
young men in those days that uh, you could ever hope to, to have, uh, courageous beyond belief. Fred Smith returned to the States and was honorably discharged as a captain, having earned a silver star, a bronze star, and two purple hearts. But he had had enough of war. Later saying of that time, I got so sick of destruction and blowing things up that I came back determined to do something more constructive. It was then that he thought of his college term paper about a transportation network for the new digital age. It was dusty, but more relevant than ever. It was pretty clear then uh, with IBM, uh, you know, installing the, the big computers around that the world was going to change. And the paper was about how this was going to change a lot of things. And in particular, it was going to change the way things had to be distributed and moved to support those automated uh, devices. Just as his grandfather and father used the cutting-edge technology of their day, Fred envisioned a seamless network of airplanes and trucks. Other companies in the 1960s were also trying to speed up movement of high-value items, but they stuck to systems designed for passengers. Fred realized that unlike passengers during that era, packages didn't have to go directly from origin to destination. Airplanes could speed packages to and from a national clearinghouse. And trucks could make the final delivery. This way, two small towns that don't have frequent flights, or any at all, could still be connected with the speed of airplanes. Fred had seen how such a system might work. The Marine Corps' air-ground integration is a huge benefit and one of the big innovations that uh, Federal Express did, nobody had ever done before, was to have integrated air-ground operations. The pickup and delivery folks were uh, just like the pilots and the airplanes and, and everything was coordinated just as we had done in the Marine Corps and all of those lessons that I'd learned there uh, on, the, on the ground and in the air in Vietnam uh, played over and over in my mind as we were putting together the business plan uh, for FedEx. His father started his motor coach company with a truck. Fred started with a handful of airplanes. He had the idea that he would make deliveries for the Federal Reserve System by transporting, sorting, and rerouting checks, all with guaranteed delivery in 24 hours. Fred's calculations showed that he could save the American banking industry three million dollars a day. He even named his company Federal Express, hoping that it would resonate with the banks and conjure up images of nationwide commerce. Today you know this company as FedEx, serving customers like this. If a patient gets in a car accident and breaks their skull, we manufacture and produce the plates and screws that will actually screw into the bone and mend the fracture. So with these types of procedures, time is extremely valuable to the patient, to the surgeon, and everyone involved. So with our previous shipping carrier, it took us three days to ship the products from Freiburg, Germany, the, the manufacturing facility, here to the United States. That was in many times not fast enough. Exceptional service that FedEx provided for an urgent case uh, that was planned first thing on a Monday morning. The implant was shipped 
from Germany on Saturday morning by FedEx. It was imported into the United States and it was received by the striker representative at the airport on Sunday evening. Now this is a one day transit time on the weekend from Europe to the United States. But back when the company was starting, not one bank believed it could deliver. So Fred, like any Marine, adapted and overcame by making a slight course correction. He would deliver any company's time-sensitive material anywhere in the country with his 24-hour guarantee. It's not like we're carrying sand and gravel. You know, we're carrying chemotherapy drugs and important manuscripts and electronic parts and, and pieces for airplanes that are grounded. So when we pick it up and say we're going to have it there early the next morning, I mean, we have to deliver. There's nothing else to it. So this is guaranteed. If we don't get it there, I mean, we don't get, get paid. FedEx officially began operations in April of 1973. On their first night, they delivered 186 packages to 25 cities with 14 airplanes and 389 team members. Most outsiders expected this innovation to fail. As Fred would later say of that time, people thought we were bananas. We were too ignorant to know that we weren't supposed to be able to do certain things. Fred, though, believed. And this story just keeps getting better. These guys were bananas. And very few people believed in this project. But one, maybe a couple more. And just imagine, folks, 14 planes, 185 packages. How the heck do you get those numbers to work? And what kind of a visionary, what kind of a temperament, what kind of people keep going and make this work when we come back? More about this great American company, more on the story of FedEx and its founding, and it happened on this day in history in 1971. More of FedEx's story, Fred Smith's story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of FedEx and Fred Smith. FedEx was founded on this day in history in 1971. And we heard Fred talk about how he lost his father and how uncles and coaches filled the breach. And men listening, be a surrogate father to boys in need. Because my goodness, what a difference you can make. And Fred Smith had said, quote, I can still hear their voices in my head. And it's clear without those men, there is no Fred Smith. He'll tell you that. We're telling you that. Let's pick up this remarkable story of this great American company. In his time in Vietnam, he developed a willingness to take great risks to accomplish great things. Most businessmen couldn't imagine calling down bombs and napalm to within a few yards of themselves and their buddies. But sometimes, 
That's just what the mission requires. Fred's different experiences, different mindset, gave him a different take on his new business struggles. The, the currency of exchange in FedEx was just money. You know, it wasn't people's arms and legs or, or, or lives. And so my perspective on it was perhaps a bit more, um, I was willing to take, take a chance because losing wasn't the worst thing in the world that could happen to you. I had seen that very clearly. But Fred's confidence and the brilliance of the model, in hindsight, weren't enough to create immediate success. Three months after FedEx's launch, delivery drivers were frequently digging into their own pockets for gas money. And back in Memphis, things were just as grim. Federal Express had already lost one-third of its startup money. Roger Frock, a FedEx co-founder, recalled the desperate measures that had to be taken. By mid-July, our funds were so meager that on Friday we were down to about $5,000 in the checking account, while we needed $24,000 for the jet fuel payment. When I arrived back in Memphis on Monday morning, much to my surprise, the bank balance stood at nearly $32,000. I asked Fred where the funds had come from, and he responded, I knew we needed money for Monday, so I took a plane to Las Vegas and won $27,000. I said, you mean you took our last $5,000? How could you do that? He shrugged his shoulders and said, what difference does it make? Without the funds for the fuel companies, we couldn't have flown anyway. As it turns out, time overseas had taught Fred more than the difference between reckless and calculated risk. It also gave him a chance to practice card games. Two years in Vietnam, we played a lot of poker and a lot of blackjack, and in those days, you only had one deck. So if you knew how to play, it was easier to win. But the winnings didn't last long, and by October, only three months later, Federal Express was on death's doorstep again. Nearly killed in the cradle by the Arab oil embargo, gas prices skyrocketed. Federal Express was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. And if it fell, it would take with it not only the $40 million of venture capital, but Fred's and his family's life savings as well. By April of 1975, two years after its opening night, Federal Express had lost nearly $29 million. Though it was losing money, the company's customer base was growing and the underlying idea was as sound as ever. But Fred will be the first to admit that there's no such thing as a new idea. If you brought Julius Caesar back to Earth, he would understand the organization of, of FedEx because he basically invented it. Uh, we have our proconsul in Hong Kong, he had his in Palestine. Uh, we have our technical folks, our IT people, our aviation maintenance folks. He had his charioteers, his catapult operators, his engineers. And in July 1975, the company began showing a profit. And just nine years later, in 1984, Federal Express surpassed $1 billion in revenue. The first company to ever do so in its own right. Since then, FedEx has grown so much that it is woven into pop culture without the company even trying. Like in the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway. 
I was marooned on an island for five years with this package. And I swore that I would deliver it to you because I work for FedEx. Hey, but by the way, what's in the package? Nothing really. Just a satellite phone, GPS locator, fishing rod, water purifier, and some seeds. Just silly stuff. Thank you again. You keep up the good work. When asked what was the key to his success, Fred is well known to give the credit to his employees. After all, they are on the front lines of the business. And of course, he learned the importance of that once again in the Marines. It was the recognition that in a high performance service organization, it's not the people at the top that are the most important folks in the equation, it's the customer service people. There are many units under the FedEx umbrella and each has a branding color scheme. Purple and orange for original express, purple and green for ground, purple and crimson for freight, and so on, all united by purple. Every FedEx employee knows what Fred Smith calls the purple promise, the simple pledge that I will make every FedEx experience outstanding. Employees like Trung Do. The day I was rescued and sent to a refugee camp, that's the day I consider myself reborn. But the day I got a job with FedEx, that's the day I consider I have a new life, the best life I ever dreamed of. Trung served alongside Americans during the Vietnam War and was sent to a hard labor camp by vengeful communists after America left. He eventually escaped and made his way to the States, where he dedicated his life to working on the same planes at the same company as the man who had sponsored him to come to America. Trung enrolled in Aviation Mechanics School in Memphis, a stone's throw away from FedEx DC-10 airplanes coming and going. And the whole time I was in school, sitting in the back of the school, looking across runway 27 with FedEx over there, I was dreaming. I was praying to God. I want to be there someday. He soon passed the mechanic test, applied to work at FedEx, and waited by the phone. When FedEx called me and said that uh, FedEx was going to give me a job as a senior mechanic with uh, this kind of pay, blah, 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 blah. He said, oh, I, mean, I was blind. I mean, I mean, I was deaf. My ears ringing. I couldn't hear a thing. All I hear is FedEx hiring me. Three decades later, Trung Do is still working for FedEx in Fort Myers, Florida, keeping their 550 mile per hour delivery trucks in top condition. Still working for you. FedEx is still working for you for when your package absolutely, positively, has to be there overnight. And when it does, think of Fred Smith, who made it all possible. And thank your delivery driver, the way Fred would walk. And what a story, the story of FedEx, which of course, it's the story of Fred Smith in the end, and the many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people who helped that dream become a reality. He employs that many people now, folks. Remarkable worldwide company. There are two simple rules to being a good combat leader, Fred Smith said. 
to be the first to charge up the hill and the last in line to eat. And though I am chairman of the company, he said, I can't get myself to cut in line in the cafeteria. And it's always a reminder, a voice inside him, that a good officer lets his troops eat first. And there you have it, a great American story, a great American company. On this day in history, FedEx was born. This is Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific. Real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life. And what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Edberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny, then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. (laughs) His comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes, mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. (laughs) I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage, and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. 
he earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time, and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. Or potato salad. Cool, I can deal with that. Let me ask you a question. How you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. Well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You got to draw the line somewhere. (laughs) To hell with purple people. Unless they're suffocating. (laughs) Then help them. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type, you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did, he said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, long hair draped over his eyes, and set long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. (laughs) Where were you? I got caught. Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion, but they usually ignore their flubs. Not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. That joke. That joke. That joke is dumb, I'm aware of that. Advil has a candy coating, it's delicious. And it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. 
Let me have 10 Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's farm bread, that stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it, and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame. And he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-sized bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. (laughs) Oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-sized bed wondering where my brother was. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig, a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All day. This is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job even at the peak of his fame because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes, he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went to a, I went to a pizzeria, I ordered a slice of pizza. The dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. I would like to exchange this for the keep it. Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like Pancake, all exciting at first, 
But then by the end, you're sick of them. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Perseverance. When we hire people, we look at their resumes, and when I look at executive resumes, we have an opening for senior VP of marketing. I'll look at that resume, and I'll write down next to each of that person's prior employments how many years he or she spent at that, and then I take an average. And if it's not five years, I toss the resume away. I don't even read it, okay? I just see how many years, how many years, and if it's not five or more, I throw it away. If it is five, then I look at it in the detail to see if that person fits the job and if I want to go to the next stage. So this is something that we are losing in our society, the understanding that it takes a fair amount of time to get anything done. To destroy something, you can do it in seconds. You can destroy a building, you can destroy a country probably in seconds. But to do something value-add, to build something takes time. To build a career takes time. To be effective at your job takes time. So we want people who are going to stay with our company. We're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to teach them about our company, about what their role is, about our customers, whatever it takes. It takes a long time. So we want people who are going to stay. And we reward people who do stay. I kicked this off very early. And we call them perseverance awards. We have them 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and now 35. There are three people in the company who have now been here 35 years or more. Fantastic perseverance. And of course, they've been successful with the company. They wrote it all the way. So let me tell you a little bit about these rewards. The first award is the three years. It happens to be a watch. 
I don't happen to be wearing it today, but it's a watch engraved on the back, your start date. It's a nice watch. It's a Casio, it turns out. It's, well, everything we do is sort of special. I, I spent hours choosing the watch, okay? The watch happens to be something called an Echo Drive. I don't know why we're talking about it here, but it's, it, it talks about the level of detail that I'm involved in. Echo Drive watch. It is run by solar power. You don't see it, it looks like a fine watch, but there are solar cells inside the watch and it's chargeable even by room light. Room light. And once charged, it can stay in the dark in your drawer for six months and still keep the time, okay? You never have to buy batteries. It's a fantastic watch, okay? Fantastic concept. So it's perseverance. That watch is gonna be around as long as you're gonna be around. So that's the three-year thing. We give you a nice watch with your the, the date when you began engraved on the back. Then it accelerates from there. I won't go through every one of them, but I think at five years, it's three extra days vacation and $500 to spend wherever you want. And I'll, I'll, I'll go up a little bit more. I think at 15 years, we send you and your spouse, friend, whatever, you and your guest on a trip uh, to anywhere you want in the world to visit the 10 wonders of the world. It's worth about $10,000 and it includes $1,000 of spending money just after 10 years, right? Now, you know, getting back to the watch, you see most companies, when you retire, they give you a watch. What the heck do you need a watch for when you retire, right? You don't have to watch the time in it. You don't have to keep track of time when you retire. It's when you're starting you need the friggin' watch. And that's why we give you a watch of three. So getting back to the 10 years, so we have it all planned out. We give you the certificate and all you have to do is tell my assistant, Linda Sincata, where you want to go and everything else is taken care of for you. All the reservations are made, everything's done for you at 10 years. And it goes from there. 15 years or 20 years. Uh, let's see, 20 years, yes, the 20 years is a party, party like a rock star with, uh, with as many friends as you can invite. I think it's worth $20,000 or 20 years. And, and here are the rock star places and the hotels and the ballrooms and everything. Invite as many people as you want to that party. Then at 30 years, we make you a philanthropist. We set up an account at Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. We fund that account with $25,000. And that account is yours. You can give those monies away. And whichever charities you want, I don't even have to agree with them. I, you know. That, that, that cost me a little bit of my brain because there are some things I, I prefer you don't donate it to, but hey, it's a free world. It's your money now, $25,000. Give it in any amounts to anybody you want. So we're making our employees, we're giving you the opportunity to be a philanthropist. What other companies do that? Now recently, I'm gonna jump forward to 35 years, $35,000 to help you do your bucket list whatever you want. This is it. This is the time you're old enough. Make that list. Have fun. Because otherwise people probably wouldn't do it. And that's a requirement that you do it on your bucket list. This is not to be to pay down the mortgage. It's not for the grandkids uh, education. It's for your bucket list. And we require that you tell us how you spent the money. We want to share in that joy. So that's what perseverance means to us. We value it and we pay you to persevere. We reward you to persevere.
And thanks for that, Dr. Bob. And if you're listening and you run and own a business, take heart how you treat your people. Well, what you do with that money and what you do with that time will determine outcomes. Perseverance. Life lessons from Dr. Bob here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything on this show. One of them, by the way, is the arts. We love telling stories of songs, great books, 1776 by David McCullough. We've done it. Uh, The stories of Aretha Franklin's music, the stories of the Doors music, the stories behind so many great songs. Well, I came across a book that tried to solve a riddle that's been on my mind most of my life. What makes something last art past a year, five years? Why are we still listening to Merle Haggard's music or Pink Floyd's music or Bach or Beethoven or Shakespeare? Why? And were those writers, when they were writing it, thinking about creating art that lasts or just getting out there and making a hit? Well, it turns out that there's a man who's tried to answer that question in a book. Ryan Holiday is a writer and media strategist who has advised clients like Google, Taser, and Tony Robbins. We asked him to share some stories from his book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Here's Ryan explaining where the book's title came from. In the late 1930s, there was a British literary critic named Cyril Connolly, and he had never really been successful himself as a writer. Uh, He desperately wanted to. He knew many successful writers. He'd actually gone to school with George Orwell. And so he, he wrote this book as a book of literary criticism, and, and basically his premise is, how many of the books that my friends are writing, that I am trying to write, that any writer is publishing, how, how many of them will be around in 10 years? He felt like 10 years was the mark of literary greatness. In the industry, we, we call any book that lasts for more than a year or two, we call them perennial, right? A book that's lasted for 10 years would be a, a, a very big success. But the irony is if you pull up uh, the New York Times bestseller list and you go to the the fine print at the bottom, it says among the categories not actively tracked at this time are perennial sellers. So there's this term. We know there are these books that, that last and last. And yet most of our focus in the industry, whether we're making books or music or movies, is about new things. It was in 2015, actually, for the first time in the, the music business that catalog albums officially outsold new releases. And so we know that the things that were made a long time ago, if you think of many of your favorite books and movies and television shows and restaurants, many of them are not brand new. It's it's actually the ones that have really stood the test of time that we return to over and over again. And yet it it's strange where most of the energy in these industries go. And so what's so fascinating about Cyril Connolly's 
sort of journey is he's writing about this, but then can he actually do it? Right. You know, he's writing a book about creating lasting, enduring work. Well, I, I was fascinated by the idea of like, could could he actually do it? Was he sort of like a, a literary Babe Ruth? Could he hit the ball where he set out to to hit it, where he pointed and told the crowd or the pitcher that he was going to hit it? And the book, it, it, it never became a sort of a massive cultural trendy sensation. But it did endure, you know, it, it was published in 1937 and it endured through a world war, through political revolutions, through fads, divorces, new fashion styles, massive technological disruption, and so many other things. It, it, it was given a second edition 10 years later, so 1947 or 1948, it was republished. And then in 2008, it was published in a third edition and it's still reading today and and here I am talking to to you guys about it and so it's a book that's outlived him and almost everything else published at that time it's earned the author a cult like following among fellow writers and creatives and I think what's so impressive is that he set out to achieve this thing and he and he did it he has another quip he said you know I'd like my my work to outlive a dog or a cat. And it is interesting how how many books and projects that creatives kill themselves to make and how ephemeral most of them are. James Salter is one of my favorite novelists. I was, was reading one of his books not long ago and on the back, which wouldn't, it wouldn't have been written by him, but it, it described his novels as having a sort of imperishable freshness. And I, I just love that idea. I, I love the idea of making something perennial, something imperishable, something that stands the test of time. And by my goodness, when we're watching Shawshank Redemption on TV or The Godfather for 90th time, we know we're watching perennials, right? And they give us more satisfaction than so much of the new stuff that we know is going to be old stuff really fast. Here's Ryan sharing some stories from his own background that prompted him to create books and other work that stands the test of time. I've always had this lifelong fascination with things that were old. When I was a teenager, everything I liked was old. My favorite bands, I'd released their albums decades before I was born. Um, they were still going strong by the time I came around. I, I remember picking up The Great Gatsby in high school and thinking, how incredible it is that this book that was written to be a critique of the jazz age, right? It was a timely periodical could have endured and, and somehow been so, so timeless and, and true even to a, a random high schooler in California, you know, 60 plus years later. And my first job as a writer, I was a research assistant to an author named Robert Greene who wrote a book called the 48 Laws of Power. This was a book that didn't hit the bestseller list until a decade after it had come out. And, and yet, quietly and slowly, it sold more than a million copies and been translated into dozens of languages. I, I would guess that in a, a hundred years from now, people would still be reading it. Um, another book that I worked on, you know, got a $7,500 advance, which is this tiny advance. It's what they call a kiss-off advance in the industry, meaning that the the lowest amount of money they can give you without hurting your feelings and they, they hope you'll go away and that book went on to sell over a million and a half copies and and you know now 10 years after its release it sells about 300 copies a week and i i went on as a marketer i became the director of marketing in american apparel and 
it was interesting at the this company which sold hundreds of millions of garments every year the best selling items were the items created at the beginning of the company's trajectory it was and they had this mission of making making things that would be sold in vintage shops in the future and i just love this idea of making things that can last with with my own books you know perhaps the readers haven't haven't heard of me or they certainly wouldn't have seen me on the new york times bestseller list uh for the most part and yet quietly and and like clockwork they sell about 5,000 copies across the various titles at every single week. And the marketing for them has long since finished. And yet, you know, surprise, uh, one of my books did appear on a bestseller list last week, a year after it had come out. And so it's this idea of making things that resonate with people that really solve some problem for them. You know, the, the best book to have written as a creative would have been what to expect when you're expecting because every day in every part of the world uh, a couple gets pregnant and they don't know what to do and so i'm i'm fascinated by that kind of work the 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 work that endures and it it saddens me that so much work that is made doesn't endure and so i was fascinated by this question of sort of what similarities do these works have in common and I, I set out, I, I interviewed uh, all sorts of, of authors and editors and producers and uh, marketers and entrepreneurs. And, and I tried to get to the bottom of what makes things last. And, I, you know, I found a few things. I think first is that work needs to be unique. If it, It's very hard for it to endure if it is not definitive, if it, if, if it doesn't stand out, stand alone. And yet, on the other hand it should do a very simple job. I think one of one of my editors said to me one time, she said, Ryan, it's not what a book is. It's what a book does. And by that, she meant it has to do something for the reader. It's not necessarily about what it does for the creator. It's about what it does. So what to expect when you're expecting it, it helps you with this difficult time in your life. And and I think that's what the best the best work does. You know, it's this this question. This is a blank that does blank for blank. If you can't fill those in as a creator, you're going to have a lot of trouble. I, I was interested in the test that Max Martin, one of the greatest songwriters, certainly the most prolific and popular songwriters of all time, it's written for everyone from Celine Dion to the Backstreet Boys to Bon Jovi to Taylor Swift. And he subjects his music to what he calls the car test. He gets in his car in Los Angeles you know, he puts the top down, he puts it on the stereo, and he drives up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. Is the music adding to that experience? That The idea that even music is designed to really do something for the audience is something I think that people miss. And, and so that, that's an essential part of this sort of creative process. And when we come back, more from Ryan Holiday on his book, Perennial Seller. And my goodness, what a fascinating question. What makes things last? Not just art, products, heck, maybe even a marriage. More after these messages.
And we continue with our conversation with Ryan Holiday, his book, Perennial Seller. And here is Ryan telling the story of how stumbling onto a band influenced the rest of his life and the rest of his career. In 2001, I, I would have been maybe 14 years old, and I was trying to illegally download a Metallica song on the pirating site Audio Galaxy, and I accidentally downloaded a song by the band Iron Maiden. I, I don't remember what Metallica song I was trying to download, but the one that I did get is etched in my memory. It was a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. And I couldn't have known as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old that that seven-minute song, I think it's about a condemned man's last night on earth, that this song would take me on this strange journey that I'd see the band many times over the next 17 years, over many different presidents, that that even contained within that song would be lessons that I would, would help me make a living as a writer. But a few weeks ago, I was in San Antonio and I saw Iron Maiden play a sold out show. It would have been, you know, 20,000 people in the audience. And next to the same friend that I'd remember telling on Instant Messenger about this band that I'd just heard of. And in front of us was this four decade old heavy metal band from East London that since 1975 had produced 16 studio albums you know, a dozen live albums, two dozen world tours, literally thousands of concerts in 60 countries. They'd sold close to 100 million albums. They'd hit number one five different times, 15 million social media followers, 250 million streams on Spotify, which is more than Prince or Madonna. This is a band that hasn't been on the radio since, well, really ever. And what Iron Maiden is and what they inspired in me and why I think they're a lesson to most creatives is that they are perennial in the sense that they have an audience that they own, that they perform exclusively for, right? So most bands are trying to put out a single to be on television, to be on the radio, to get new fans. And, and Iron Maiden has said, that their lead singer, Bruce Dickinson, he, he said, you know, we're like farmers. We have our field and we're tilling that field. We don't really care what's going on on these other fields. There's supposedly a story between the lead singer of Iron Maiden and the manager of Iron Maiden and at an industry event. And some young agent came up to him and said, look, I, you know, I admire, he said this to Iron Maiden's manager. He said, I admire what you do. It's just incredible, uh, the success that you've had. And, and the manager said to him, you probably think that I'm in the music business. And the guy said, yeah, of course. And he said, I'm not in the music business. He said, I'm in the Iron Maiden business. And, and what he meant is that he didn't care about trends or fads or what everyone else is doing. He didn't care about other acts, even in their niche. He only cared about this one band and about making something that's true for those fans and, and something that, that, that they cared about. And so as a writer, I've always, I've always taken a great lesson from that. How, how, do you, how do you not care what's going on around you and only care what those true fans want and need? And how do you make something special that goes to some core part of the, the human experience for them and make it so good that they want to invite other people to join that exclusive 
sort of community or cult or club with you. And and so what I was trying to write in Perennial Cellar is sort of a recipe for how to do that. You know, how to how to develop that thing. You know, Stefan Zwig would say, and, and obviously he lived many years before Iron Maiden, he, he would say that the most valuable thing for an artist to achieve is a faithful following, a reliable group of readers who looked forward to every book and bought it, who trusted me and whose trust I must not disappoint. And I think that's wonderful advice, whether you're, you know, a baker or a mechanic or a best-selling author or a multi-platinum musician is how do you achieve that following and, and build that platform? That, that's, that's what the book is ultimately about. And here's Ryan on the relationship between creative artists and marketing. I talk to many creatives and writers and entrepreneurs, and I, I tend to find that they follow a, an arc where they, they throw themselves into making whatever it is that they're making. And it takes everything they have, and they get there, they limp across this finish line, and they think they're done. And sadly, that's not true. I liken creativity to being a marathon that you finish. And when you walk across the finish line, instead of someone grabbing you by the shoulders and putting a medal around your neck, they, they grab you by the hand and pull you to the starting line of a next marathon where you have to run again. And that second marathon is, is marketing. How do you get attention for that work? If you, if you can't, find an audience, then so much of that work was likely in vain. There was an interview a few years ago with the novelist Ian McEwen, and he was saying what a pain it was to market his books. He said, I feel like a wretched employee of my former self, my former self being the happily engaged novelist who now sends me a kind of salesman out on the road to hawk this book. He got all the fun writing it, and I'm the poor bastard who has to sell it. But Making art for a living is a privilege, and one of the obligations of that privilege is thus the selling. Uh, there's a line from Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal. He said, if you don't see any salespeople in your organization, then you're the salesperson. Who's going to pitch your work if not you? Right? Who's going to sell this thing if you're not interested in selling it? And so that's what I end up telling a lot of creatives. There's no magical firm that you can hire. There's no magical button you can press. There's no magical media outlet. Even being on this wonderful show isn't going to guarantee that my book, Perennial Seller, is going to find all the people who are interested in finding it. And so if you're not going to do it, who will? Peter Drucker, the management expert, he said that each project needs someone who says, I'm going to make this succeed and then goes to work and does it. That that has to be you. So I push creatives to think of marketing not even as an obligation, but as a essential part of the creative process. Can you be as creative in your media appearances, in your marketing, in your ways of getting customers as you were in writing every page or, you know, developing the uh the vintage of wine that you're you're selling or the the boots that you wanted to produce, right? How can that be as much of a of a canvas to paint on to make something special as as the thing you you made itself? And 
a lot of creatives fail at this. I mean, the, the, the shelves grown with unwatched movies and unread books and, you know, our phones are filled with downloaded music and podcasts that we'll never get around to seeing. And so that urgency, that sense of I've got to make people care about this is really the essential task of the writer or the creative of any kind. You know, if you build it, they will not come. That is not how it works. You have to make them. You have to invite them one by one until the crowd is full, until the the, the seats are filled. And that's why you did this work in the first place, right? Certainly no one slaves away on some creative or artistic project purely for their own satisfaction. Otherwise, why would they have ever released it in the first place? And so that idea of, of taking ownership of, of it is the difference, I think, between something that sells five copies and something that sells five million copies. And I think every artist would rather, whether they admit it or not, reach five million people than five. And there you have it, Ryan Holiday, his new book, Perennial Seller, and essentially answering the question, what makes things last? From products to art, frankly, to a marriage or anything else you care about in your life. And by the way, I love the line, it's not important what a book is about. It's, it's important what a book does to the reader. And hopefully we're doing good things for you, the listeners. Ryan Holiday's story, Perennial Seller, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories, although you may not know what auto-tuning is, there's no doubt that you've heard it. In fact, you just did with our bumper song from the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow. Auto-tune is an audio processor that was designed in 1997 to disguise or perfectly tune vocals or instruments that were off-pitch. Is this new music technology a good or a bad thing? And is it really new? Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Autotune has become the Botox of pop music. But like the commonly used neurotoxin, could autotuning be beneficial? Let's take a closer look. Tonight we present a new miracle of electricity, the Sonovox. Harry Babbitt, using special Sonovox units, gives diction to the tones of the instruments as they play. Harry forms the words, but the instruments sing them. Sing it, saxes! Here's music writer Dave Tompkins. Like we always have this attraction from, from an early age at altering our voices. I think that happens with you know, hooking up to the uh, clown balloon dispenser at a birthday party. And, and here's a way to um, explore different characters and what's more human than wanting to be something else. Here's musician Ben Harper. More bounce to the ounce. I mean, when that dropped, driving down Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A. playing Roger or Zap, you're sure to get a girl's attention. Marvin Gaye or Roger Troutman. Can't miss. More, more, more. 
Roger Troutman and Zap, to get that sound, you had to take a tube, hook it up to a, an electrical charge, and it would send an electrical current down your throat that would then go through a box and go through whatever instrument you were playing. Your voice, through the electrical charge and current that was going into your throat, was coloring whatever instrument you were playing. After an hour of recording with that thing, it hurt. So now they have what's called auto-tune, and it's just the processed version of that sound, which sounds exactly like it, and is equally as cool. The television show South Park has had some fun with the auto-tune debate. Here's a scene where Stan has discovered some troubling news about his father. Uh, hey, Dad. I need to talk to you. The chick that wrote the theme song to the new Hunger Games movie is you? Yeah. Wait, wait Lord sounds like a girl. Auto-tune. You want to see how I do it? I use this program to import the recordings I make on my phone. Sparkling thoughts, give me the hope to go on. Dad, Lord's music is actually really good. Thanks, but it gets even better when I add the drum loops. Yeah, yeah, feeling good on a Wednesday. Then with the computer, I can actually quantize Sparkling, everything. Feeling good, feeling Back good. Backup instruments. Thoughts, and yeah, then finally, yeah, I use the yeah, auto tune. Yeah. Sparkling thoughts, feeling good on a Wednesday. Giving me the hope. Here's Hall of Fame singer, songwriter, and record producer Linda Perry. Would you auto tune Patti Smith? No. Carol King? No. Janis Joplin? Oh my God. She, if they put auto tune on Janis Joplin, she would sound like that belief. And you know that's where that came from. That sound came from, and I love Cher, but they must have accidentally left it on while she was singing. I know this is what happened. And then it went, and they were like, what is that? That's cool. Here's culture writer Oliver Wang. What happens a generation or half a generation later is that R&B artists and hip hop artists they discover they actually really like the sound of auto-tune. They like the sound of this kind of robotic otherworldliness, something that sounds completely unnatural. One of the first people to do it in a big way that surprised a lot of people was actually Kanye West. I'm not loving you way I wanted to. Here's musician Bonnie Ray. There's something great about not fixing stuff. You know, I leave funky notes in all the time and slide notes that aren't quite up to it, and I'll, I'll, I'll tune it back up, and it just loses a lot of what the edge to it. Here again is Ben Harper. Now that auto-tune has become a sound, if you want that as part of your sound, by all means, it's a sound, and it works. So if you want that as your sound, go. But if you want your voice as your sound, no effects. Start working on scales. Here again is Linda Perry. There's not a lot of Christina's. That woman can sing. And she can change her voice and do so many wonderful things with it.
Her problem is her perfectionism. That's where she gets into trouble when she tries to perfect the vocal. Troubled waters there, but when Christina just sings. As soon as she said, don't look at me, I heard it. The vulnerability in her voice, the insecurity that, oh, she really doesn't think she's all that. Every day is so wonderful and suddenly. It's letting go of ego and being open to failing. Now and then I get insecure. The beautiful thing about that version is when Christina sang it, it was just, it, it was emotional. That was the take that I knew, right? That that was the master take. I added the drums and everything after the fact. And Christina kept on coming to me, I gotta re-sing that. You know, when can I re-sing that? I'm like, re-sing it? Are you crazy? This is Magical, like people would die for this emotion. Don't you bring me down so she kept on saying, but wait a minute, it's not, that was my first take. I'm like, I know. She's like, but I can do better. I go, I know you can. That's why you're not going to re-sing it. It's like seven months of this. Like the album is, you know, done. It's being mastered and she's still going at it. So we go in the studio, put it all up, and she starts singing. And I just literally, just one time, she's, I mean, we're like maybe a minute into the song, if even that. I just stopped and I'm like, we're done. And she's like, what do you mean we're done? I'm like, I can hear already you're over singing, you're over perfecting, and you're ruining the song. I'm like, oh, what does she mean? God, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? I don't understand this form of perfection. And then I finally realized there is no perfection. It's about finding the beauty in the cracks and the holes and the imperfections that's so perfect and beautiful. It's actually about people allowing themselves to be vulnerable and insecure and not always feeling like they're gonna get everything right because that's what the true beauty of life is. It's about not really getting it right. It's just getting it right in the moment of who you are right now. Certainly while all music can be a mathematical equation to varying degrees, soul isn't, soulfulness isn't. There's such a huge, great soulful place for technology and music. There is, but there is place where you just go over the edge and lose the, uh, the center of the circle. Every generation of people who listen and write and, and think about music always fear that technology is going to create this homogenous sameness and that everything's going to sound the same. And you can find those complaints going back to the 1920s and 30s. You know, here we are almost 100 years later, and if you look back on the history of it, you would never say, oh yeah, music and all of these different generations and eras all sounded the same. We can always find difference. We can always find the things that stand out to us as being unique. The ones that we remember are the ones that did it really well and, and were different and innovative enough to stand the test of time. It's not the technology that makes great music, it's what's in your heart. 
We don't really judge a vocal on an intellectual level. What we respond to is some feeling that they're honest performances. And when we start to feel like this singer is carrying some truth to us, we make the deeper investment. This is not just the singer-songwriters. It's not just that confessional mode. It's James Brown. It could be chic. But we know when it's, you know, this is where we start to run out of words and we turn to authentic. For our American Stories, I'm Greg Hengler. Great job, as always, Greg. And, well, you haven't heard that one before because I hadn't. Auto-tune versus imperfection. The story of music, in a way, and so much more in technology. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. OurAmericanNetwork.org.